0: On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture.
1: Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at Kevin Couchman and at Brad Kelly.
0: Dark room episode where we bring in a, a special guest to talk about a previous subject. But first, Kevin, it's been a couple of weeks. How you doing, man?
1: I'm doing great. I am going to struggle with this episode because I'm in Miami. The sun is shining. The people are beautiful. The the, pan, the pandemic seems to have spared the people right. of South Beach. I think it's something in the Botox
0: yeah Uh, oh okay that's a good theory yeah
1: yeah i'm i'm gonna yeah trust the science get the botox and then
0: suddenly it's like COVID doesn't exist at all amazing right right yeah so i guess it is a little hard. maybe it's a little hard to get into the kafka my uh head you know what in a funny
1: way i think it's almost ideal i think that there's gonna be a nice kind of high contrast situation going on here and i'm excited there's kafka in the sun Try and imagine Kafka laying out in South Beach, all the art deco, and he's trying to get a tan, but Kafka doesn't tan. Kafka burns. He just burns, burns. that's right.
0: (laughs) I think that's fair to say for sure. Um, So yeah, so uh, I guess we gave it away. We're going to be talking about Franz Kafka. If you haven't um, listened to our first um, episode on Franz, uh, that's you can scroll back through the archive and find that, um, we, we go pretty deep on the biographies. So, so today we're going to, you know, we'll maybe touch on some of that. We've got some other things we want, we want to say. And so we've brought in somebody, uh, who is a favorite Twitter follower, follow of mine, among other things. Um, and you know, if, if you don't know him, hopefully this is a good introduction. Um, goes by Huggoolian, uh, at Huggoolian on Twitter. Um, he, uh, the guy who's got a, a interesting take on just about anything he chooses to have a take on, in my opinion. Um, and also, yeah, I'm just going to say, I think he's one of the keenest experts on the great writer, uh, JG Ballard. Um, and maybe we'll end up talking about that a little bit. um. um and if you really want to get into the J.G. Ballard stuff, you can go to the, go to the Twitter, but he also recorded an episode with a friend of the show, Aldous Asterian, at, uh, at Forest of Symbols. Um, hugolian has got a substack. Um, I believe the name of that is Some Private Diagonal. Is that correct?
2: Uh, that is correct. Uh, okay. Right. Yes, yes. That's, yes. A, that's a Ballard reference. I'm not going to explain it, but...
0: Okay. Good.
2: Really okay. Okay. <laughs>
0: um, and yeah, I guess anything else you want to say, Hugulian, Hugu- Hugu- in terms of intro or you know things that people should know about about you and and, and what you're up to.
2: All right. Uh, well, first of all, thanks very much for that very generous introduction, Brad. Sure. And I'm also a great big fan of uh, you know your work and uh, I, I mean that. you're together with Kevin. Yeah. Okay. Who am I? Well, I think. I updated my profile recently, maybe to try and establish a bit more know, clearly what I'm about. So, so I put reactionary modernist. Um, so I think I think that's kind of sums me up really that I wouldn't say I was exactly right wing, but I'm kind of, you know, kind of not on board with some of the I don't know developments today. And yeah. I do write quite a lot on Twitter about uh, the modernist period, the sort of first half of the twentieth century, basically, um, and the artists, uh, writers, uh, filmmakers, and so on of that era. Um, and of course, one of those is uh, Franz Kafka. So yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But I was just going to say, one of us, one of us. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel like uh, the kindred spirits there a little bit. Um, I'm not as uh, I've, through this show. I'm, I'm becoming more and more acquainted with the, the modernist movement, particularly particularly the literary side. But you know, I had my my share of exposure to it in, in, in undergrad, and um, there's something about maybe it's because it's almost exactly a hundred years ago. It somehow has started to feel more relevant to me. Um, than when I was kind of first exposed to it, say 20 years ago, maybe that's, maybe I just am starting to understand what was going on better, but, um, somehow it feels like we're in some kind of loop. <laughs> um, I have no so, way of backing this up, but I
1: think, I think modernism happened, but modernity never happened. That's legit. my that's my that's my operating <laughs> thesis. Okay, uh, I,
2: Kevin. Actually, um, that somebody made it. You know that thesis, is that, that exact thesis. Uh, is it Bruno Latour, the um, uh, the French uh, philosopher. Yeah, so Artaud, we have never been Ar- modern. Who? Latour. Uh, La La oh, yeah. is that right? Um, okay, we well, have never been modern. Yeah, exactly. Wow.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of feeling that. And and the thing, the moment that triggered that in my mind recently was wandering around here again in Miami, and there was a fellow at one of these COVID tents, because of course everybody has to get their COVID testing if they want to be traveling or for a variety of reasons, right? People want to have these tests and, and these these people who are making these tests are getting federal dollars. So it's a little cottage industry right now, more than a cottage industry. And there was a fellow there. And and again, high contrast, you're wandering around, you have all these people in their swimsuits and their bikinis, and they just come from the gym. Very few people are wearing masks. And then you pass by one of these tents out on the street and there's a fellow in a a proper mask, a face guard, visor type thing over the mask, and then a full, uh, almost like a raincoat plastic sheet. And I just, the vision I had in my mind was like one of the plague doctors you see right, from right. medieval times. And I just had the thought, oh, we're, we're immediately into a pre-modern circumstance here. All it takes is one bad cough and everybody yeah. is instantly reverted to to that. Yeah.
0: Well, there's also an element of, uh, you know, one night after troubled dreams, Gregor Samsa woke up in a hazmat suit kind of thing, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Like, how did I get here? How did I get to be this person in this situation? Well, yeah. may
1: I ask, Hagoulian, uh, and for people who want to find you, it's H-E-G-H-O-U-L-I-A-N, just for ease. Uh, when, when this philosopher says, we have never been modern, what does that, what does that mean to you?
2: Okay, well, um, if, if we talk about Kafka and how Kafka was modern, I think you can class mm-hmm. him as a modernist. And I think in a similar way to the way that Ballard was modern, in the fact that he, I don't know, he would keep, sort of confronted the modern world, you know, he, he looked at it square on and he, he, he was fascinated by it, and so I guess repelled in, in many ways by it and i think he was he didn't want to run away from it um, which i think you know for me most especially now really in, in the age of the internet and the virtual that people are in fact running away from the world you know and, and exactly that's what kafka didn't do mm-hmm. um, and this is why i think he remains such a vital writer um, mm-hmm. is, is that kind of very you know
0: Stevie Vision, anyway. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, he—you're right—that he didn't. He didn't. He and and I learned this in doing the biographical work on on him. He was equal parts um, made sort of paranoid, and you know what we would call like, you know, had had a soul crushing job. He was equal parts that, but also like he was fascinated by flying machines, you know, airplanes. When they came, because there was kind of coming onto the scene in his life, and he had the opportunity to see a, an actual airplane fly at one point, and he was fascinated by he was fascinated by people who could operate machinery well, right? So, like on the one hand, you know, he could sort of feel aspects of of increasing modernization, sort of taking something away from him, but on the other hand, he had a very genuine compulsion and fascination with it, and is maybe kind of stuck between those two things in a certain way.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it does, you've got sort of in the penal colony, you know, where, where there's obviously a fascination with machinery, uh, with the, right. with machine which, which executes uh, condemned prisoners in, in a rather cruel way and very lengthy way.
0: Yeah, yeah. Maybe let's talk. Let me maybe let's talk about in the penal colony a little bit. Kevin, are you familiar with this short piece by Kafka? The shorter in piece? in
1: the penal colony? No, I am not, and I'm not even sure we talked about it on the episode. Did it come up?
2: It's been a few months. I mean, yeah,
0: I, d- yeah, I don't know that we talked about. It. I mean, there's there's. It's interesting. I, I was thinking in in preparing for this episode, was thinking like there's a lot of different kinds of Kafka readers. I, it seems like most people I talk to have identify a different piece as their favorite, which is sort of unusual. Um, you know, you've got people who, th- who claim it's the trial is sort of their favorite or speaks to them the most, or Metamorphosis or, you know, the castle or the shorter works, but in the penal colony, um, well, Hugulian, you, I know you're familiar with this story. Would you kind of give us a primer on what that story is? is?
2: Okay, um, well, there are basically um, four, Characters who, who feature in the story and, and a couple of other characters who are mentioned. Uh, the main character is the traveler who has arrived in this colony apparently by invitation. And he has been invited to, to witness an execution um, which is being carried out by the, the, the other main character, really, is the officer. And there are kind of the officer is is extremely enthusiastic about his job (laughs) and about how he carries out his job, which is by means of this machine, which is very, very, I don't know, um, lovingly, almost, uh, described by Kafka in great detail. Um, And it's not a machine which actually exists in reality, it's completely Kafka's uh, invention. And um, this machine is being used to execute uh, the condemned man who is a kind of supporting character and the condemned man is being you know, sort of kept in line and sort of chained up to a, a soldier who is very bored and takes very, very little uh, part in the, in the action room really. um but anyway the opposite explains to the traveler exactly how the machine works and, and what it's for and that this machine is to execute prisoner um, it, it's supposed to write his uh, judgment on the prisoner's body, on the naked body of the condemned man, and this takes many hours. Um, I, I think it's over six hours. Yeah, I think six hours. He passes yeah. out. Of
0: and it's like um, I think the way I visualized it, 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 it's like tattooing. It's like deep, deep tattooing, right? Yes. Yeah. It's very painful. Right.
2: Yeah. Um, but you do get. A bowl of rice pudding, <laughs> right, <laughs> um, right. which you can eat. The condemned man can eat uh, this. Um, and, uh, and as I said, the, the officer is extremely enthusiastic about this machine. And I think part of the reason why he's enthusiastic is because the old mm, commandant of the uh, colony, who he seems to worship almost, uh, invented it. And this old commandant died. And now this officer is, is kind of protecting his legacy this, this commandant. Um, but the traveller reveals his disapproval of this machine, which he regards as, as, as inhumane. And it turns out everyone, almost everyone in the colony is opposed to this machine, and, and including the new commandant. And it seems that the traveller has been sent there to witness this execution in order to sort of condemn the method of execution and then this will lead to this uh, uh, machine being you know, this, this this practice being abolished um, but uh, I, don't know, I don't know if I should spoil the ending really but um, it, one thing it does uh, besides the fascination of machines uh, it does again go into Kafka's obsession really with the law yeah. and with justice and punishment um, and and sort of you know that also injustice is yeah, justice <laughs> or right. unjust justice right y-
0: yeah which is which is you know in a one or two sentence thematic description of the trial would be a, a good approximate approximation of what is the what is the sort of v- what is the vibe and theme of mm-hmm. the trial is is very closely related to in the, in the Penal Colony, I think. But the machinery part is really fascinating. I know one thing we kind of wanted to talk about too, and this does relate, is the um, the Orson Welles adaptation of The Trial, which for folks who haven't seen it, is well worth your time um, for a variety of reasons. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a top-notch film. It's Orson Welles' his favorite work of his own. Um, And I remember when I first saw it, I got into Kafka very young before I really understood it at all. And I saw the film, it had been recently sort of restored or somebody had found the reel or something. This would have been like in the late 90s. And uh, there was a scene where um, Joseph K is at work and there's a computer. There's like a computer that's like going to take over their job essentially. And I remember seeing it and thinking, Oh, this is this is terrible. This wasn't in the book. There's no computer in the book. Why did they do this? But then, as as I saw it again on a, a rewatch most recently to to prepare for our first Kafka episode, I realized that Kafka would have Kafka would have put a computer in the trial if he'd known that that computer was coming. Historically, I think. Well, it isn't. And-
1: May, may I interject, Brad? No, is it ahead. fair to say, in terms of a pop culture reference, and maybe this is even, oh, God, I'm starting to get old, right? But yeah. it, it's something that somebody could grab off the shelf right away if they're a, a, a for real, for real bus Zoomer who doesn't have a point of <laughs> reference with Kafka, right? You could yeah. find the movie Brazil. Yeah. Brazil yeah. is deeply Kafka-esque. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, you The know, great that's Te-
1: a- Terry Gilliam movie.
0: That's a good point. I think it is it I mean, it the easy reference for Brazil is that it's it's like nineteen eighty-four, right? I think that's the on the face it, of it. It's almost kind say. of like uh the love child of nineteen eighty four in Kafka though. In something point. like that. But yeah, yeah. I think there's a I think there's a more Kafka-esque element to it. Well the humor of it is is there in Brazil in a way that it's not really in nineteen eighty-four and is more in line somewhat with the humor, the kind of humor that I think Kafka tended to get at.
1: Yeah. This vision of a, of a soldier being bored, having to attend <laughs> right. to this machine that punishes someone. It's just, it is kind of, it's Beckettian in a, in a funny way. Well, that's uh, true. Or too. Is, is it yeah. fair to say that Beckett is Kafkaesque? Uh,
0: yeah. 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 Well, I think, I think that the, in the penal colony one feels it, it feels, re- well, it feels relevant feels relevant all of the time right and and it does have to do with this this sort of fascination obsession and and at the same time kind of paranoia about the law that kafka had and i think he really managed to distill it really well it's i would strongly and and i think hagulian i think you were right on to not quite spoil it because there is an aspect of the punishment that is unexpected as you're reading it and i think really I think really captures the full scope of what Kafka was trying to to say. Um, you know, I, I don't wanna assume that I know what he was trying to say, but I think right.
2: <laughs> I think, I think starts I think we start to capture it there. Yeah, and there's, a, great, there's a, a very interesting detail in the in the in the people column, which um, kind of matches up with the trial, is that when when the officer shows the uh, the traveler the script, which is supposed yeah. to be the judgment, actually yeah. he can't read it. The traveler can't read it. It's just so dense, and a tiny script. He can't read anything. And uh, in the trial, you know, when when um, Joseph K goes to, to read read the the books and the law, he's not allowed actually, and, and he doesn't know the law. This is a, you cannot know the law in this right. Book
0: right right um, oh right yeah. right yeah i kind of forgot about that detail in the in the in the, the, the penal colony but that's totally true and i think i think there's um there's a in, in this tale this goes in with the, the trial we're talking about the sort of correspondences between in the penal colony and the trial I'm talking about the movie again and i don't know um Higuli and how recently you've seen it but um one thing that stood out to me watching the film that I think is in there in the book, but it it, it somehow, it it was more present to me in, in the film, is how Kafka was presenting every aspect of Joseph K's life as like the trial. It was this concept of this sort of being involved in this quasi-legal process that you can't understand, you didn't, choose to you didn't even act in any way that put you into it and you see it like it goes right down into the initial interrogation in the film so it's anthony perkins plays the part of joseph k he does he's amazing he wakes up in the morning and there's essentially there's a police officer there but the initial interrogation is actually it's quite hilarious um there's there's this description that the, that Joseph K has. They're they're talking about why there's this pattern on the floor where there used to be a dental chair, and I don't remember if it's Joseph K or the police officer who describes it as ovular. But then, the uh, yeah, it is, it is the
2: officer. Yeah, yeah and then, this... then
0: the police officer is like, is basically like interrogating him. Like, well, ovular is not a word. That seems <laughs> like a pretty crazy thing to say. Like, your story's not making any sense, buddy. Ovular, <laughs> <laughs> and he's it's, he's he's entangled in this this process that he doesn't understand the rules of and keeps looping back on top of them sort of. And I saw that as like a mini version of the larger trial that he's part of. Right. And then you see it with the, the woman that lives in his building and then at work. And he's constantly engaged in these, in these sort of little trials. I can't really think of a better world word for it.
1: I managed to look up the page count of the tax code yeah, How many pages is the U.S. code? Yeah, It's 2,652 pages. Um, yeah. I feel yeah. like
0: I got that inscribed on my skin last year, actually. That was, uh, <laughs> it was complicated right. next season
1: last year. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, the <laughs> font really doesn't get any smaller. Micro font. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
2: you know, um, when I was uh, sort of researching, reading and researching for this, um, it, it occurred to me, actually, that A lot of Kafka's writings can be kind of read in the light of Max uh, Weber's um, work. And actually the concepts that you know the the sociologist Max Weber. Mm -hmm. um, And the concept of I'm trying to pronounce this in German because my wife speaks German, she told me how to pronounce it. (laughs) Um, uh, Stahlhartes Right. Stahlhartes Gehäuse. This is one of the most famous of his concepts, and it's been translated uh, in the past as iron cage, right? mm. but more literally it's like steel, hard casing. And this, mm. this term was really what Weber used to describe the increasing, uh, rationalization of life in modern society and, and that sort of bureaucratization, you know, bureaucratation of life, turning into, everything turning into a bureaucratic nightmare, essentially. Right. Um, and I think this, this really informs Kafka's work, but at the same time, I think, you know, when, when Weber right, paints a very, very negative picture of this, um, I think Kafka was, you know, he's more fascinated, not more fascinated, but he's, he's equally fascinated and repelled by, mm-hmm. by this kind of aspect of modern society.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, I think, I, think, I think you're right. I think he does have, do we know that if he read Weber, probably it, no right? idea no yeah idea, he but. probably did but maybe but maybe not um maybe that's not giving kafka enough credit for being able to sort of see this stuff himself it, yeah and I, that's really interesting this concept of i'm gonna have to look up the german word uh yeah can you the <laughs> can you do me the courtesy
1: of saying the word um uh one more time uh yes <laughs> he's gonna try um, it's um
2: uh, I'm. I'm going to look it up now. Yeah.
1: Stahlhart is Stahl- Gehäuse G- Stahlhart is Gehäuse. Okay, let me yeah. look. Hart- Stahl- yeah. Stahlhart is Gehäuse Yeah. Hart is That's really mm. difficult.
2: I'm gonna have to.
1: I'm gonna have to look this up. That's. Yeah. Uh, I. I have enough German to be a little dangerous.
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and one. Yeah. One thing I think that maybe Kafka, does with that concept is I think he's a pr- is very effective at showing um, maybe how it affects the way that a person might think. Now, his main characters are sometimes, in, in a certain way, kind of set against it, but his supporting characters, it kind of shows you the effect it has on them as people. Like, you look in the trial, the, the people who are carrying out the trial, they kind of become in modern parlance they've kind of become npcs to a certain extent and and not in a not in a poorly written flat character way i think it's purposeful to show that the other people engaged in this thing kind of can't think their way out of it I'm convinced that the Microsoft Excel is a computer virus that has leapt into the human brain and we're all suffering the consequences <laughs> of it. This <laughs> is like we've got into like hyper-tech, hyper-categorization and everything has to oh. fit into it. You know,
1: and it goes even further. Somebody made this uh, interesting observation on the Bird website today. Uh, I think you may have seen that we're very active on Twitter at Art of Dark Pod. And you can find all of us sort of through the tendrils there. But someone was showing one of these one of these TikTok gals who was pulling these crazy faces. And apparently there's a, a word or a phrase for what these faces are, where they really ham it up for the camera. And it's called Pixar Face. So these people have oh, taken yeah. their they're quite literally embodying Pixar and and someone called it culture as cybernetics. So you are that was was That was you. That was
0: Hegulian. Okay,
1: perfect. Yeah, excellent. Okay, good. You see, I, I had you you wonderful Anon accounts on Twitter. It's I love it. It's just sometimes it all blurs together. Yeah, what did you mean by that, Hegulian? Uh, can we talk about that? Because that seems germane to this conversation. Where does the machine end and the human begin now? Uh,
2: exactly, yeah. I, I sort of got that from reading Friedrich, Friedrich Kittler. Yeah, Hitler. Who was a thinker much more recent than Weber? Um, he died about 2013, uh, age 70 something. And uh, he was kind of like, in, in many ways, he, he was similar to Marshall McLuhan in the way he, he analyzed like, the modern society in terms of te- kind of a, like a technological determinism. So that the technology is really determining. He says uh, media determine our situation, but when he says media, he means kind of you know, things like um, print media. You know, and, and as the technology changes, we change. And um, so, so uh, he he is. I guess you find this cybernetics idea in, in Kitler that we are kind of in a system of signals and, and sort of programming us. Uh, no, nobody's really in charge of it, but it just kind of operates uh, on its own, really. And um, he he wrote actually his first major book. It's called Discourse Networks, 1800-1900. And I'd like, I really need to read this nineteen hundred part. I haven't got got to it yet. But when he said he took this idea of discourse from Michel Foucault, and the idea kind of like a post you know post structuralist idea that knowledge is is being kind of generated in this kind of relativistic way through discourses and and uh, kitler was really interested in in the way technology impacts on that more more so than Foucault was interested in that so we might see you know this kind of this whole culture of of mass media now and and things like disney pixar and so on just controlling or, or sort of controlling people programming people training people to act in certain ways and to make certain gestures expressions and so on it's not, not really intended I don't think you know the, the, the designers of these the, these animations intended this to happen really but it just ends up happening um, so so that's what I'm talking about by cybernetics. you know that uh, we become according to Kittler, you know uh, McLuhan said, the sort of media are extensions of man, but for Hitler, man is an extension of the media. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah.
1: So, so, yeah, wonderful. And this is a thread that we're poking at as we do Art of Darkness. It's not a philosophy podcast per se, but it just yeah. it just naturally emerges. I, when you mention McLuhan, I always think of that that great scene in Annie Hall. You know nothing of my work. uh, wonderful and I'm reminded in this conversation of the the Disney episode we did and the moment that in Fantasia they blend and I think it's the first time this was done certainly it's it's a famous moment where they blend uh the the uh, orchestra conductor so the real world shadow kind of uh, the there was like a it's all shadows so it's the orchestra conductor and then mickey shows up in the real world mm. and there's that blending of worlds and the blending of the media reality with the ostensibly the real even though of course it's not real it's cinema but yeah i don't know yeah. I, I'm, I'm reminded and that's of that a,
0: and, and, it, and that's an obvious that's an obvious choice to make if you're at the forefront of that technology at the time but you don't realize that you have just crossed. A sort of a threshold like in some sense you didn't just do that on celluloid you have actually done that in real life see for, and i'm poor i'm tin foily enough to think
1: they knew exactly what they were doing and they were <laughs> summoning enough. some sort of dark but in in any case we're straying a little from kafka yeah, but that's and okay. yet and yet we're not this is not a writer quite. who inspires this kind of this kind of uh, uh thinking and discourse and all the rest yeah so yeah, yeah, very yeah
0: interesting. Ab- absolutely um yeah so <clears throat> the one thing one thing I kind of wanted to talk about so this is this is interesting i I I'd stumbled across this um, quote um, by Susan Sontag, and I don't know how you guys feel about her. I know she can be somewhat polarizing um, but let me just read this really quickly. Um, this is Susan Sontag from Against Interpretation. The work of Kafka has been subjected to a mass ravishment by no less than three armies of interpreters. Those who read Kafka as a social allegory see case studies of the frustrations and insanity of modern bureaucracy and its ultimate issuance in the totalitarian state. Those who read Kafka as a psychoanalytic allegory see desperate revelations of Kafka's fear of his father, his castration anxieties, his sense of his own impotence, his thraldom to his dreams. Those who read Kafka as a religious allegory explain that K in his book The Castle is trying to gain access to heaven. That Joseph K in The Trial is being judged by the inexorable and mysterious justice of God. Um, I just find that interesting. This sort of tripartite. See, to me, Kafka is doing possibly all three of those things and maybe more. Um, but you know, we've got this sort of social, personal, religious way, lenses that we can put over maybe any, any, a reading of any of Kafka's work that I think, that I think we can, I think, I think are are productive interpretive frameworks. Um, Yeah. 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 I I think this
2: is one thing that makes Kafka a modernist because let's say you compare with Dostoevsky Mm -hmm. now writing, you know, 50 or 60 years earlier. Right, uh, you've got, say, you know, sort of Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky, yeah, where there's kind of, you know, he goes kind of round the houses a bit, you know, kind of through a sort of Nietzschean Superman kind of ideology, and yeah. then comes back at the end, really, to a kind of affirmation of Christianity. Yeah, there's and,
0: a there's you know, a sort of discrete moral uh, to Crime and Punishment, even though the book is a ma- I mean, the book is a masterpiece, but there is a there is a a unit of a moral, like you might find in a fable or something.
2: Right. Yeah. So, so you know, that makes it, you know, classic 19th century novel, mm-hmm. um, where, where the, you know, the author is presenting himself as somebody who's got a clearly defined opinion or view mm-hmm. and, he, and he wants to pass it on to you. Yeah. Although he might go through quite a few stages, you know, for example, the brother, Brothers Karamazov, um, mm-hmm. many philosophies are presented in that. In that book, but he does give you a view at the end. And but right. Kafka is a modernist for one, you know, one very important reason that he doesn't want to tell you, you know, unambiguously mm-hmm. what he thinks. Mm-hmm. Um and maybe he, he has you know he has his own view of his work, which may or may not be ambiguous, but he doesn't want to sort of preach to you. Yeah. Um. This would, Yeah. This is crucial, I think, in terms of modernism
0: of Kafka. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. No. This is. This is good. I'm getting. Uh. Comp. Complexifying our definition of what modernism really means, and I think Kafka is is. We were kind of talking. Uh, offline about you know how does he how does Kafka fit into into modernism and I think I think you hit the nail on the head with that right there. One thing that's always kind of appealed to me about Kafka is there is this tendency to try and see his work as allegorical um but i think he's using i think he's using the structures and tenets of like an allegory but ultimately the allegory sort of doesn't stick it it it's because it's referring to multiple layers of things just like in sontag's in sontag's uh, the excerpt from sontag but also because he's at the in the final analysis it sort of doesn't actually it's like a it's referring to a referring to a referring to a on on forever kind of thing right yeah yeah. it never settles on it and that's the
2: point yeah Mm -hmm. that almost feels like go ahead no no Oh, i'm just gonna to bring in the sort of metamorphosis and yeah and this story as a as a kind of example of absurdism, um which was kind of later I suppose defined by Camus yeah, in the Mythos Sisyphus* um, in his early 40s. But Camus wanted to say, you know, he didn't think the absurd was necessarily something objectively real. Um, but it's just something which which he, you know man has come to kind of feel in the modern world, you know, as, as a kind of a, an inescapable reality. So so you no, know, there's no explanation for why, Virgo Samsung wakes up as a bug, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, nobody really seeks an ex- explanation.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it just, it just, to, to yeah. yeah. If you were to write your you know a grad school thesis on what was really going on with why, why did Samhsa turn into a bug? Not from a thematic standpoint, but from like a a mechanistic. You know, mm-hmm. everybody's obsessed with world building right now in writing. Which is uh, kind of a turnoff to me. But, like, uh, from a world building standpoint, what are the rules that would be in place in order for SAMHSA to turn into a bug kind of thing? It's like that is really, really not the point. Um. <laughs> That's a, that is a great point itself. It, you
1: know, it's like if, uh, if Kafka was to, to write crime and punishment, punishment, it would just be called crime and crime. Or just <laughs> punishment and punishment. There's no second act. It's just this awful. Well, yeah. He
0: he would have decided to kill. The, he would have decided to kill the landlord in the final second. She w- he wouldn't have killed her, but she would have like fallen down the stairs, and it would have been his fault anyway, or something. Mm-hmm. It would have been yeah. like that kind of like in in you know folded in on itself sort of thing. I think.
2: Mm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, you know, I think so much of his work. Is about discontinuities and kind of arbitrary events, really, which happen, um, and and there's maybe no apparent reason for them happening. Um, yeah, which this, is, I think, yeah, go, ahead.
0: go Which I was just going to say, from a, from a perspective of a writer, that's like a big no no. Like you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to. Nothing is supposed to be random, right? It's all supposed to make make sense together. Um, yeah. Kafka manages to pull off this thing where like, no, if you have one big striking random thing happen, um, everything can flow from that. It's it's like, you know, the big bang doesn't make any sense. But if you have it, then from there, all of these things, all of this other material can kind of flow from that one arbit- arbitrary and random moment. Right. Yeah. I mean,
2: I found out something today, actually. Um, that. Kafka was interested in theosophy. Okay. Um, yeah. And he actually met Rudolf Steiner. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. He met him. Uh, he went to see him at his, I guess, it some kind of um, office or, or whatever, what have you. This is in 1911. It was, it was actually in his diaries. Oh, wow. Um, okay. And Kafka kind of, you know, he, I suppose he's quite young at this point, And he, he, um, he told Steiner, you know, that he, he felt himself drawn to theosophy, um, but he wasn't quite sure, you know, what to do about it, really. Um, so, you know, I, I think in terms of like religion, Capcom religion, I mean, when he was a, a boy, he, he wasn't keen on going to the synagogue. No. Um, but he did. He does, I think, talk, to, talk about God to, to Max Brod. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe I could find... Something. Yeah.
1: Um, who was who Rudolf Rudolf Steiner? He was a Theosophist. Was he part of Blavatsky's circle?
2: What? Right. Yes, and actually, um, Aldus has done an episode about this. Ah, uh, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You should definitely check it out. He no, did a quite well breaks. Yeah. The yeah. Guy. No, that no, was okay.
0: Good. And, and yeah. Rudolf Steiner, if I, if I'm not mistaken, did eventually start. The, uh, I hope I'm getting this right. He eventually started the Waldorf school system. Is that correct? Oh, oh that makes yeah.
1: perfect sense. That's why all the Waldorf kids in grad school were so flowy and woo-woo. I love that. <laughs> Wonderful.
2: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. He, he met Steiner. Um, but about, I about Kafka's ideas about God, there is this um, uh, quote from, from Max Broad, actually. Uh, I remember Broadlight's conversation with Kafka, which began with President, their europe and the decline of the human race uh, we are nihilistic thoughts suicidal thoughts that come into god's head kafka said whoa this reminded me at first <laughs> this reminded me at first of the gnostic view of life god as the evil demiurge, the world as his fall. oh no said kafka our world is only a bad mood of god bad day of his then there is hope outside this manifestation of the world that we know. He smiled, as Kafka's smiled. Oh, plenty of hope, an infinite amount of hope, but not for us. <laughs> so, oh, 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 oh man! <laughs> oh, yeah, geez.
0: that's that's that sounds like Kafka. Well, and he he, and this this gets us into something else that I wanted to, I wanted to talk about in our original episode and kind of couldn't fit it into the biographical material. I guess this is one of the reasons we like doing these follow-up episodes. This gets into the Blue Octavo notebooks a little bit because uh, a lot of the Blue Octavo notebooks deal with religious or quasi-religious themes, sort of reinterpretation of of religious myth, whether it's Christ, um, Christian myth or or he talks a lot about Prometheus, um, and sort of in, interrogating that myth. Um, and so for folks who aren't familiar with it, the Blue Octavo notebooks, so Kafka was an obsessive diarist and letter writer. And there was a period where he sort of set aside his typical diary, picked up literally Blue Octavo notebooks and started writing um, almost daily uh, thoughts and, you know, images um little bits of what you might call philosophy or or theology. Some of it is like little scraps of stories. Um and he deals with and it was interesting your quote there, sort of touching, brushing up against Gnosticism. I think he was I don't want to say he was finding his way towards Gnosticism, but some of the Gnostic ideas i think made sense and resonated with him whether or not he was actually reading those texts or not or or kind of arriving at it from his own angle um like i'm looking at the blue octavo notebooks right now there's a part um uh yeah i'll just read this really quick this is kafka fourth notebook in the blue octavo notebooks for us there exists two kinds of truth as they're represented by the tree of knowledge and the tree of life the truth of the active principle and the truth of the static principle. and the first good separates itself off from evil. The second is nothing but good itself, knowing neither of good nor of evil. The first truth, truth is given to us really, the second only intuitively. That is what it is so sad to see. The cheerful thing is that the first truth pertains to the fleeting moment, the second to, to eternity, and that too is why the first truth fades out in the light of the second. So there's something kind of
2: complexly
0: Manichaean to what he's he's talking about here. Um, And right next to this, he says, suffering is the positive element in this world. Indeed, it is the only link between this world and the positive. Only here is suffering, suffering not in such a way as if those who suffer here were, were because of this suffering to be elevated elsewhere, but in such a way that what in this world is called suffering in another world, unchanged and only liberated from its opposite, is bliss. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I don't know. Again, this is a slightly random, but but he was certainly, and it, now you, you bring up him being interested in theosophy. I mean, I think it's easy to, it's easy to, try and discredit theosophy um, you know there's a lot of characters in there who, who had their own agendas and all of that but I think you can't it, I think it's difficult to disentangle theosophy from what we what we refer to as modernism as a literary and artistic movement what, what would you say about
2: that Julian? Uh, absolutely absolutely yeah. and um, I started a book recently which was um, modernism and the occult. Ooh. And this is really fascinating. Um, now s- some of the modernists, like Yeats, were either open occultists, really. He was mm-hmm. a member of the, the Golden Dawn. Mm-hmm. And um, he was, you know, kind of, um, he was he was really into that and, and sort of magic and so on. And some of them, uh, I think also, um, that uh uh well there was even uh, Eliot was was kind of interested a little bit um there was a mention of uh, tarot in in the uh, in, in the wasteland in the wasteland right yeah i think he he was curious about that but um not as much as pound i think pound was more interested in the occult. but generally the occult did play a very big part in modern
0: Um, Right, they were all sort of flirting with it and it it held a certain appeal to I mean, even we found even Joyce was kind of flirting with these ideas. He would dismiss them and then also uh, he would dismiss them out of one side of the mouth and sort of seem to take them seriously out of the other side. So it's kind of it's hard to know what his relationship was. Yeah,
2: Joyce seems to have been interested uh, interested a bit in um, in Kabbalah Mm -hmm. um, which is not not only I think Jewish tradition, but there is a kind of in, yeah. uh, a Christian tradition in that as well. Right. Um, well, and Joyce. Like,
0: yeah. yeah, and Joyce. Well, Joyce loved. I think Joyce loved systems in a certain way, mm-hmm. right? So there's there's a, oh, this is an organizing principle of you know cosmic scope. Like even if he didn't believe it, I think Joyce is going to want to understand that. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And there is, was in, you know, in Kabbalism, in, in the tradition of Kabbalism, something very appealing to artists, really. Mm-hmm. Which, um, with Paracelsus, uh, this uh, kind of Renaissance Kabbalist, uh, he he held to this idea that that the fall, so Adam's fall, really, is is a kind of a, a failure of the imagination. Yeah, mm-hmm. kind of uh, fragmenting of the imagination away from, from divine so so the kind of overcoming this fall is is a kind of imaginative uh, enterprise in a way so it's a kind of, kind of very ballardian and actually this kind of idea that the imagination is is the kind of the source of salvation mm-hmm. um yeah so obviously a great i think uh, blake was also very very taken with this idea which, which kind of was, continue as a kind of thread through the through, uh, occultists and the Kabbalists um, down, down the ages. Uh, yeah. and Blake famously said, uh, you know, imagination is the body of God. So, mm. yeah.
0: Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I am of the opinion that that almost anybody who takes their art seriously is like, at least coming up to the edge of occultism in some way. Like you almost have to, in a certain sense, and you don't have to actually know any of these texts or any of these people. But you're you're by you know dedicating the time and the energy, both cognitive and emotional. I think you are brushing up against.
2: Yes, I mean even like that. even someone as mainstream as Martin Amos, you know, mm-hmm. he, he called writing a spooky art. Right, 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 <laughs> so, right. right. Um, I think you could, if you do settle down to write, I mean. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sort of writing as much as you guys, really, but yeah. um, you do notice that something happens, which does, you know, in, in, your, in your thought process, mm-hmm. um, which is perhaps kind of out, of out of the ordinary, you know, and um, also bring in Ian Sinclair, this is psychogeographical writer. He says when he starts a book, you know, and his books are really about psychogeography, then, you know, the phone starts ringing and, <laughs> right. and, and, and the calls that come in, are, you know, the calls he needs, and, you know, these kinds of things, right? So yeah. it,
1: It's and, absolutely bonkers. I've had extraordinary <laughs> things happen. I'm not going to go into it too much, but I would encourage people to check out the great uh, Grant Morrison lecture on Cigil oh, yeah. Magic. Uh, yeah. And Hagulian, uh, are you familiar with this? I'm not. I, ah, oh, it's I'll, quite I'll good. Share, yeah, I'll share it with you on the Bird website. But if you look up Grant Morrison's Sigil Magic lecture, he just essentially says, uh, you know, that he went ahead. He's a comic book artist. He wrote uh, The Invisibles. He's sort of a famous comic book writer. And he, he claimed that he read Crowley and he read Austin Osmond Spare and all these other fellows. And he has a thick Scottish brogue. And he's like, so I decided to do it. I thought, <laughs> why don't we do it? I'm just going to do it. And here's the thing. It works, you know. Yep. He's like that, <laughs> and he it it goes on about it. And it is there is a quality to it that's absolutely strange. When you start to write something with the intention of shaping the world, you absolutely change your own mind, and that alone, mm-hmm. of course, we know has this incredible power. Uh, And again, I've had extraordinarily spooky things, very weird synchronicities can start to stack one after another when you begin to write, especially when you begin to write with the intention of, of modifying your own reality. It's called a spell for a reason, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. Well, one thing, um, yeah, I was just thinking about that. I was... um, you know, I write best when the house is quiet and there's nobody, you know, even if there's nobody around, right? And so I wake up quite early to do it. But, you know, every once in a while on a weeknight or during the, on a weekend, the house will be empty. So I'll sit down to write. And sure enough, if I go into my workspace and I waste time, like, you know, I've got two or three hours before the wife and kids come home, wife and kid come home. And if I waste time, you know, say I waste a half an hour Twittering or whatever. As soon as I start to actually write, they will come home. This has happened like 12, 15 times. Like, (laughs) like as soon as I'm like, okay, I'm getting serious. I'm like disconnecting from the internet and, you know, (laughs) boom, they walk in the door. It's like, wow, I did, I, I betrayed the magic somehow, you know, like, and and who knows if I would have just gotten right down to business, maybe they didn't come home for another hour. You know, it's, yeah. it's a very, very strange process. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about before we, we, we kind of wind down is um, a little bit more about this, this connection between Ballard, J.G. Ballard, um, and Franz Kafka. What can you tell us about what Kafka meant to Ballard, both maybe directly, maybe indirectly? What, what's, what's,
2: what's there to talk about? okay well ballard did list the trial as one of his favorite books and of course ballard is a surrealist and i think as i said early on that they were both fascinated by the modern world and sort of repelled by certain aspects of it and um, ballard was i think kind of had some affinities with kafka in the sense that uh, he had the, the feeling of, the, of normality. You know, he, he said, there's nothing normal about normality. <laughs> so, so all of his stories, I think, um, try to, 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 to kind of put across that, that idea that, that the regular world, you know, the sort of banal reality, is, is uh, sort of concealing this kind of strangeness, really. And um, I think Ballard's, uh, Ballard's heroes his protagonists are also questing for something, uh, much like Kafka's um, protagonist, mm-hmm. They're trying, sort of trying to seek some some fulfillment um, and they are, you know, sort of running into all kinds of obstacles and I would say that um, a lot of what, you know, a lot of what they try to overcome uh, in, in Ballard it's kind of like Problem, often problems in their, inside their own psyches, really. Yeah. Um, whereas, I suppose in Kafka's world, the problems are more external. Mm-hmm. Um, but for example, in the Atrocity exhibition, uh, the, the, I mean, all the problems are in the in the character's head, really, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the in the protagonist's head, and he's trying to to sort of overcome his his mental breakdown by. Sort of re reordering his mental furniture, as Berlant says in one interview, that he's trying to connect, you know, things together in a way that makes sense. You know, what his obsessions, whatever they are, they, they, he he feels that they are linked in some way. So he's he's kind of doing this. Um, I don't know. He, in the in the different stories, the the T character in the trusty Exhibition behaves in different ways. Um, sometimes he, he, he in most of them he is a sort of psychiatrist who's gone insane. Hmm. And um and he's trying he's doing all kinds of weird things like kind of reenacting, for example, the, the Kennedy assassination. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. And and Ballard says, you know, he's he's trying he's trying to kill Kennedy again, but in a way that makes sense. <laughs> but he's not really <laughs> killing anybody. You know? it's yeah, it's all yeah. it's all happening in his head. That's interesting. Yeah. Although he yeah. does actually kill some people in some of the stories, to be honest. But yeah, but yeah there, is, there is a kind of a sense of deep strangeness, just like in Kafka, and also a kind of refusal of any easy answer. Um, you know, kind of, Ballard doesn't really care to, to give you some kind of cozy moral at the end of the story. I mean, like, for example, Crash. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of a horrific book, but Ballard yeah. doesn't really condemn what goes on in the, in the book
0: no um, that's that's one that yeah. was the first ballard that i i've read and i was sort of fascinated by exactly what you're saying the way it's sort of yeah there is no condemnation but but you feel uh, i i personally felt like i was there was a subconscious part of me that was trying to condemn these characters and and ballard's handling of it like resisted that it was a very interesting yeah. effect to read that book
2: it's because very very matter of fact and in similar ways to, to to Kafka, I think. And Kafka's prose is very sort of clean. It is. And, yeah. and sp- kind of spare and, and quite simple, but this is a bit deceptive mm-hmm. because, you know, he, he's actually doing all kinds of tricks with his prose. I mean, in the original German, that's something I found out during my, my research. Yeah. yeah. Um, in German, the verb can come right at the end of a clause of uh, a sentence. So, so this um, at the beginning of, uh, of the metamorphosis uh, by putting the verb at the end, you, you know, you, the sense of the sentence. So we've got this sentence, which is usually translated as um, one morning uh, Gregor Samsa woke from uneasy, uneasy dreams to find himself transformed into a giant insect. Mm-hmm. But, but if you were to translate it literally, it would be um, from an, uneasy dreams where Gonzanza awoke to find himself into a giant insect or giant vermin, actually yeah. more accurate, transformed. So transform comes right at the end. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you've got this wonderful build-up of tension. Like, what is this sentence? Where's it going? Right. <laughs> you know, right. The German reader. Right. Uh, and then the final word, you know, brings down the full strangeness and horror, really. Um, interesting. So, so okay. he's doing that very carefully, you know, Kafka. With,
0: with his with his writing um that, that, that kind of reminds me that that effective i'd, I'd read that before about that translation and it kind of reminds me i remember reading something in his diaries about part of the obsession he had with writing is he always felt like he was building up to some kind of epiphanic moment right it was and he was never quite getting there it was just this constant verging on, like I'm actually going to get it now, right? <laughs> and so well, just and th- spending- this
1: is this is perfect too because there's the Hanukkah adaptation of the castle, which mm-hmm. it's been many years, it's been a decade since I I watched that. I I may, I may have to screen it again, but I think the castle is the unfinished story or the unfinished novel. Is. is that correct? Yeah. Right. And right. of course the, the film adaptation of it, it's wonderful. It's very theatrical. Uh, and it just simply ends <laughs> right where the story ends, where the unfinished novel ends. And there's a little title card that says, and this is where the, the novel ends. <laughs> right. And, and we're not going to try to We're not going to even it. try to. Yep. Not right. our job.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. Perfect. Yeah yeah well the castle is interesting let's talk about the castle for a little bit too because um there's so I got curious I wanted to see what is the most what is the common interpretation of what's going on in the castle um just like Susan Sontag said that there's these three armies of interpreters what what is, what is going on with the castle and the, the sort of the first thing that came up I suppose if you read this in like, you know, your intro to English, your intro to literature course, they would maybe describe the castle as this, a kind of allegory for Kafka's nightmare of the unconscious world. I don't know that I agree with that interpretation. I don't know. What do you think, Kigoulian? Is the castle an allegory for Kafka's nightmare of the unconscious world?
2: Mm. It's not something that came to my mind. No. Um, <laughs> I, th- See, I think I
0: th- it goes to that external versus internal thing you were talking about. I mean, a little bit, anyway.
2: I mean, one, one interpretation of that I have seen in sort of, sort of PDF notes to the Castle audiobook, that I was listening to it mm-hmm. rather um, than reading. And um, in there, you've got the interpretation of the trial being about divine justice. And and the castle. Uh, and this is based on the fact that um, although it was never finished, uh, Kafka um told Max Brod what what uh, his intended ending was. Oh. And uh, yeah, and the, the ending he had in mind was that um Carr, he's called Carr in the audiobook version. Mm. This is German pronunciation okay. So Carr is um you know he's finally granted. Permission by the castle to work or to stay in the village, really, and work there, but not to come to the castle itself. Right? <laughs> and, and actually, he dies then of exhaustion. <laughs> oh, Jesus! <geez, laughs> yeah, but he's been granted something of what he wanted, right? So, um, so, so the interpretation of it is that it's about grace. You know, it's about divine grace and, and forgiveness, or, or yeah, d- divine mercy. Mm. so you know, that's one interpretation but um, I, I prefer
0: that to it being a nightmare I, just because mm. it, there's a beauty in the coming to divine grace being not this straightforward um, unblemishedly beautiful process but a process of ironies and misdirections and confusions and and, yeah. and all, and all it, it being a labyrinth to get to, to something like grace rather than than, um, you know, it just being bestowed yeah.
2: upon you, and it's not happily ever after, either. right? It's just something, you know, and then you die. <laughs> right, 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 yeah, and then you die. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, well, yeah. yeah, and I feel like I feel like that's a good moment to yeah. say wind down this dark room episode. But I know that we have another twenty or thirty minutes coming on the Patreon. We always do a Patreon episode. Uh, yeah. Patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. And Brad, I guess I'll let you read us out. But before I do, Hegulian, do you want to get your plugs in here uh, so pe- people can find you and find your work and all the rest?
2: Okay, thank you. Um, so, so I'm on Twitter. um, um is, is my Twitter handle. And I've got a Substack. stack. Um, it's a bit sparse at the moment, but I'm, I'm working on that um those are
0: those are by the way we didn't talk about them much but mm-hmm. i i did read i've read those the pieces you've got on on Substack. that's really good work it was it was fascinating so i pre- I appreciate it and people should check it out um i would also recommend you had i know for a while you had a pinned tweet and i imagine this tweet still exists where you're kind of collecting your best threads um i recommend that to people all the time so go find that in in hugolian's uh twitter timeline
2: it's right it's yeah. quite good and um, sometimes it pops up because i do post something in there and then people following me kind of find it and, mm-hmm. um, but yeah i used to have that pinned but i, I decided to pin the, the sort of podcast appearances yeah yeah um but yeah there's a kind of archive of best threads and, and so on so um yeah uh, that's
1: Hegelian. Okay. Is there what is the origin of this handle of this nom de plume? <laughs>
2: well, uh, I'm kind of interested in in Hegel's view of history as a sort of process. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm not a, I, as I told uh, Aldous, I'm not a big Hegel guy, really, but um, I do find his idea of the sort of process of kind of, you know, it's a kind of deterministic process. So I find that interesting. And, and kind of oh, it. I uh,
1: yeah, yeah. I may have spent some time in a philosophy department as a very tortured undergrad <laughs> at Minnesota, and uh, now I understand Hegelian. <laughs> right, <laughs> I like it. That's yeah. that's a wonderful costume for uh, an undergrad, for a philosophy undergrad or a professor. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, I think yeah, there is a kind of a you know something a bit ghoulish about some of my content sometimes. But um <laughs> that that's kind of like the pun on it really. It's, it's, I love it. it's just kind of like Hegel, you know, Hegel's kind of optimistic guy. Yeah. But but I'm kind of, you know, a little bit prophesying, you know, doom, I suppose. But uh-huh. um you know, it's still I like, try to keep it try to keep it, you know, not too black pilling as I saying. Mm. say. <laughs> mm.
1: uh-huh. well, Brad what a Brad I what are we going to talk about on the uh, uh, the afterdark?
0: Yeah, I, you know, um, a couple of things I want to talk about are are um, some elements of of uh, Kafka's uh, posthumous legacy that I found interesting. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about that one. That's a little bit scandalous for for uh, for our Patreon subscribers, and then I think you know we're probably going to have a couple maybe loose ends here from this conversation to to sweep up. I feel like we could go on for another couple hours, but what uh, uh, we're not going to um, <laughs> just to maintain our sanity. So, yeah, we'll be uh, join us on the uh, join us on the After Dark episode, support us on Patreon and, and we'll get you uh, another 20 or 30 minutes of um, sweet, sweet content.
1: Yes, we're do not become a Pixar cyborg, become an Art of Darkness cyborg. <laughs> and a great right way to right. do that is to support our Patreon, uh, real people making real content. And Hugulian, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, look forward to talking with you on the After Dark episode here.
2: Thank you. It's been All right. Great pleasure. All right.